Who's waiting for something really cool to happen? <laughs> something cool is about to happen, but it probably won't be what you, what you expect. Hey, um, welcome, guys. Um, I am going to move this back because I stepped on it three times last time, and it's precarious at best. Um, hey, welcome, everybody. Welcome our visitors in-house. Welcome out there online, wherever you are, whenever you are catching us. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time to, to check us out and to hear what God has for you. I think God's got something really fantastic for you today. I think he always does, but every now and then it just strikes my heart like there's just something really cool. And uh, so, welcome. If you've missed any of our previous series, you can go back on our website, uh, discovercommunity.church, or Facebook or YouTube, any of those places, and they all have uh, ways that you can get the archived messages. So, Listen to those. Now, if you're looking for, like, I wonder what series they were just in before they started this brand new series. We spent 10 months, can you believe it, 10 months in the book of Job. And I hope that you have found it um, uh, educational. I hope you found it encouraging. I hope maybe there's some things that you've been enlightened to, maybe ways to look at that that you had never looked at it before. Um, maybe for some of you, it's the first time you had ever studied or, or heard anything in the book of Job other than persevere and it's painful, pretty much, right? But after that, we've learned a lot of things. In 10 months, you would hope that we've learned a lot of things, right? But if we boil it down to just maybe a few bullet points, sort of, on what we've learned in the book of Job, we've learned this. We've learned, number one, God will use everything for our good. The trials, the pain, the suffering, and the good, the blessings, everything that comes our way, God has promised, and we've seen throughout Scripture, that God uses those things to refine us, to make us better than we would just be on our own, make us more in the image of Christ, and in some cases, just simply to keep us safe, to keep us safe from ourselves, from our own bad choices. If I do this... It's going to hurt. The moral of the story, stop doing that, right? So it keeps us safe. But another one, Satan will do everything he can, everything in his power he will do to steal our inheritance that is in Christ Jesus, everything that he can do to tarnish the bride of Christ, which is the church, everything he can do to get us to stop trusting in God. Stop trusting in the faithfulness and the goodness of God and instead go, well, we better figure this out on our own. If we're thinking that, Satan's got us right where he wants us and the enemy is relentless. That's the other thing that we've learned through studying the book of Job for 10 months is that the enemy is relentless. He comes at us all kinds of different ways, but he never stops. And I've taught this. I tend to be spiritual warfare focused and so I teach that idea a lot, that the enemy is relentless 24-7, not just on, you know, Monday through Friday from 8 to 3 or, you know, excluding bank holidays. And he is relentless, and he will always come at us. And one of the scriptures, probably even a casual churchgoer is somewhat familiar with this, and I've certainly quoted it a lot. 1 Peter 5.8, got it right there. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, Seeking someone to devour. Again, that I teach that Satan is relentless. We can't let our guard down. 
because that lion, that roaring lion is always there to pounce. That scripture is, a, is an image to the people at the time and to us of a lion sneaking around in the shadows, watching the flock and just waiting for that time to pounce. And he will, as soon as you let your guard down, he will pounce. But thankfully, we have the good shepherd. And that's the good news. The good news is that Satan is not the only one who's relentless. Satan is not the only one who is 24-7 on guard looking for you. Jesus Christ is relentless. And he is relentlessly pursuing you. That's why That's why this chapter in Luke 15, we've named this series. It's only three weeks, but we've named it the Relentless Pursuit. Because after all this, 10 months of just thinking, the enemy's out to get us. The enemy's out to get us. Hopefully that's not all you took away. But it's good to know that there's someone else that's out to get you. And that's Jesus. Listen to what Jesus Christ himself had to say about his pursuit of those who belong to him. Listen to this. Now, in context, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. Okay, he'd been traveling around doing miracles. He had just fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. Okay, miraculous occurrence. He had walked on water. He had done all these things. And then he stops and he says this to the people that are gathered around him. This is from John chapter 6. First couple I'll read to you, and then I've got a couple on screen. John 6, 37 and 38 says, this is Jesus speaking, everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, and then verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything he has given me I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Amen. That That is the entirety of the gospel message right there, isn't it? The good news of Jesus is just contained in that one statement right there. Jesus teaches a lot of ways. Scripture in itself, in, in its entirety, teaches a lot of different ways. There's narrative. We've taught this in our bedrock class. There's narrative. There's allegory. There's poetry. There's, there's um, historical narrative. Then there's Proverbs, wisdom literature, and then we come down to what this is. These are parables. Okay, but Jesus isn't speaking in parables. Like what he just said, that's a statement of fact, Chapter 15 we're going to go into today, that's all parables. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what he just said, that is a statement of fact. It's not a story. It's not subject to interpretation. It is exactly as Jesus said. Now, that seems obvious to us with 2,000 plus years of hindsight and teaching and the Holy Spirit to be able to, to hear these things and interpret. But think about if you were in his audience at the time. This ragtag group kind of mob, if you will, of people who had just kind of collected around him and followed him around. This ever-growing group of people. Some were, they were from all different walks of life. Some were, were Jews. Some were even Pharisees. Some were, 
were Greeks. Some had simple country folk who had never heard of, of Jesus or God or heard any scriptures at all. There's everybody from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds. And they would have had very much difficulty trying to figure out the context of what Jesus is saying here. Those the Father has given me, I will not lose. I do the will of my Father. I will lose nothing of what he has given me. They're like, okay, so what did he give you? You walk around, you're wearing robes and sandals, and you really don't carry much else. So you probably didn't have an entree. You know, he had disciples coming with him, but he didn't have you know, trailer loads full of all his stuff. What are you talking about losing? They would have had a hard time with that. And the, the Jews in the crowd, those who at least understood Scripture, would have really had a hard time with that statement. In fact, they probably would have thought what he had just said was absolute blasphemy. And we see that evidence of that, John 6, 42. Their response to him saying that, and they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Right? Now, this is, again, this is right after he had fed the 5,000, walked on water, done all these things. So they'd seen the miraculous, and yet they're still going, wait a minute. This guy's saying that. He says, my father, but his father's Joseph. We know Joseph. I have a coffee table that Joseph made. Maybe not. That's not Scripture. But how does he say that? So they would have been struggling like, number one, what is he even talking about? But then the other half, that's outright blasphemy that he's speaking. This is one reason why Jesus then, when he teaches, very, very often he teaches in parables. Now, a parable is, is a story that is simple, relatable, and understandable. It's not necessarily factual. When he tells a parable, it's not necessarily a story about something that happened. It's an illustration meant to be relatable, and it's meant to take a very complex teaching, complex theology, a complex idea, and boil it down to something that you can go, okay, I see how that works. Okay, and so in this case, that's exactly what he's doing. He's telling these parables. Now, there's many other reasons for parables. If you're interested in those or different genres of parables, biblical literature, sign up for our bedrock class, another little teaser. That's coming up in the fall, so watch for that. We're going to have an eight-week series where we'll do dinner, fellowship in here, and we'll do some teaching through some bedrock foundational ideas from Scripture, so watch for that coming up. But back to parables and the idea of Jesus teaching in parables. This chapter, Luke chapter 15, I think is one of the greatest examples of Jesus teaching just a straightforward gospel message, but through parables. So that's what we're going to look at. It's Luke chapter 15. Our entire three-week series here is going to be spent in Luke 15. Three weeks. We'll be done before you know it compared to our previous ones. So catch all of them if you can. Now, Jesus tells three different parables in Luke chapter 15. If you're familiar with it at all, he teaches the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the prodigal son. And they're all meant to illustrate his relentless pursuit of you. Let's look at it a little bit farther, because most of all, or most often that is, these three parables are taught in isolation. 
Okay, if you've been going to church much at all in your life, at any point in your life, you've probably heard one of these three parables kind of taught in isolation to illustrate some sort of an idea. And it was probably a great message, and it was most likely a, a fantastic idea because it is, it's a great story. But what I want to do here is look at the three of them as a collection like they're supposed to be. When you look at that chapter, when you read 15, there's no back and forth. It's not Jesus said this, and the Pharisees responded with this. And then Jesus said that, and then the response was this. It is an uninterrupted story or series of three stories that he's telling in response to a challenge that the Pharisees have leveled at Jesus. So we're going to look at them over the next three weeks. We're going to divide them out into three, of course, and we're going to look at them a little bit closer. So let's look at now. Let's go in and look a little bit at the context of what Jesus is speaking here and his response to them. It's always important when you're looking at any scripture, look at the before and after. Look at the context. Look where he was, what he was doing, why he said what he said, the way he said it. And it tends to bring scripture to life if we do it like that. So here we are. Jesus had been traveling through the Galilee region of, you know, the greater region called Palestine, which pretty much all that whole region was called. He's traveling through the Galilee, and he's performing miracles. He's got, his, he's got his disciples with him. He's traveling around miracle after miracle and just moving around, teaching and doing miracles. And then comes to this point where he's like, okay, I need to head to Jerusalem. Passover was coming up. I need to head to Jerusalem and fulfill the destiny that the Father had given him. So he starts then, again, it's not just he doesn't jump on the highway and take a bus to Jerusalem. It's kind of a roundabout trip, and he stops off at towns and villages along the way, and he's teaching and healing and performing miracles of various kinds. And he's traveling really throughout the whole region, takes kind of a long route. He travels through an area called Bethany and kind of skirts through part of Samaria uh, before he arrives in this region that's kind of known as Perea. Let me show you a map really quick. Here's what this area looked like. The, the area of Palestine kind of looked like uh, in Jesus' time. So where it says Galilee, that's a little lake there. That's the Sea of Galilee. Tiberius on the shore. And that's essentially where he did a lot of his ministry. Then he starts to travel south all the way down here to where Jerusalem and Judea is. But in the meantime... He goes through all these different places and regions down here. Now, Samaria is kind of known as an area not necessarily friendly to him at the time. So he, he kind of dips into there. But for the most part, he travels over here east of the Jordan. This line right here going from the Dead Sea up to uh, the Sea of Galilee, that's the Jordan. So anything east of the Jordan, in this case, is the area known as Perea. Now, it's... It's talked about in Scripture as things being east of the Jordan is generally where the undesirables tend to live. Okay, it'd be kind of like on the other side of the train tracks. And that's going all the way back. East of the Jordan was kind of known as, for the most part, heathen territory. Now, there were, um, there were strongholds. There were cities. There were, obviously, there were, there were Jews and synagogues and things like that over on that side. But for the most part... It was uh, not, as, not as religiously founded as the other side of the Jordan, as it was west of the Jordan. 
So Jesus goes into this part as he's on his way again down to Jerusalem. That's, that's in essence, that's where he is. Those of you who like to see visually um, what's going on, that's where he is. So let's get into the scripture then. So Luke chapter 14. So if we're looking at 15, let's jump into 14 and see what happened kind of led us up to where we are. Luke 14, verses 1 and 2, says, It happened that when he, meaning he meaning Jesus, went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from edema. So depending on your translation, in fact, most translations use the term dropsy, which sounds all cute, but that's edema. And what that is, it's a severe life-threatening illness that this man had. It's fluid retention that can choke off your airways. Um, very, very serious. This man was, was extremely ill, probably terminally ill, but we don't know that for sure. Not until he met Jesus, that is. But Jesus was traveling. Again, he's going all the way down to Jerusalem, and it's time for the Sabbath. So he's going to have... Sabbath meal. Now, typically, you would gather your people around. You would have a nice feast, or at least as best as you can on that day. He's traveling through this region, and there happens to be one of the leaders of the Pharisees, not Pharisees that are in Jerusalem. There are leaders of Pharisees all over the place. And this one hears that this Jesus, this teacher, has been traveling through, and he's in our neighborhood. See, Jesus would have been considered, today we'd call him an influencer. He's one of those guys that everybody kind of wanted to know. And they kind of wanted, out of curiosity, to be near him and maybe kind of glom onto some of his prestige if they could. Now, being a Pharisee, he wasn't necessarily on board with Jesus' message, but having him in his home would satisfy a lot of things. Number one, curiosity. Who is this guy? What's he teaching? But it would maybe elevate his own status, like, hey, this guy, he's in my house. It's like I'm having a rock star in my house. So it kind of satisfied all those things, but there was another reason for it. Something a little bit more devious. And it might have been... It's a trap. That's for my friend Jeremy, who I'm, I'm sure understands that meme better than any of us. It's a trap. Do you think Jesus was caught by surprise? Like, oh, I had no idea you were trying to trap me. He walks into the house, and it says... And in front of him was a man suffering from edema. This guy is, is very ill, if not terminally ill. And he walks into this house where they're going to have the, the um, Sabbath celebration. And this guy is right there. Was that by accident? I don't think so. I don't think it was random chance. Jesus knew what was going on here. And he had other motives for accepting this invitation. He certainly wasn't trying to elevate the status of the, of the Pharisee leader. Luke 14, verses 3 and 4 then says, And Jesus responded. So they didn't ask him a question. If you notice the last thing, and there in front of him was a man suffering from edema. They didn't ask him a question. But the very next verse says, And Jesus responded. So in other words, Jesus walks in the door. There's a guy sitting right there. And Jesus goes, I know what you're all expecting. I know what this is about. They don't have to say a word. So he immediately responds. And he responds this way. Luke 14, 3 and 4, And Jesus responded and said to the lawyers and Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. This ill man, Jesus said, Is it, I want to ask you guys, is it lawful for me to do this or not? 
And they didn't say a thing. Partly because they're like, what's the right answer? They knew what the right answer in their mind was. No. To heal on the Sabbath was not expressly forbidden, but to do the work and the things that were involved certainly were. Jesus sees their non-response, heals the man, and the man walks away. So get the picture. Jesus is invited to this innocent Sunday Sabbath or uh, Sabbath soiree, this little party at the Pharisee's house, and this severely ill man just happens to be there and just happens to be the first thing Jesus sees when he walks in the door. It's an absolute setup. But Jesus responds to this trap by dropping a few parables about healing, about humility, about the bread of life. He basically schools them, and then he just walks out. It doesn't say in Scripture, but I'm imagining he doesn't stick around for the meal. He then just leaves and resumes his journey down to Jerusalem, bringing along with him, Scripture says, large crowds following him. So here's this thing. The large crowds had been following him already. He comes to the Pharisee's house. They invite him in. He goes in. Certainly the large crowds can't come in. Many of them are sinners. They're unclean. They're the the least of these of society. They can't come in. So they're basically just camping out in the yard probably waiting for Jesus to come out. Well, when Jesus comes out after having schooled the Pharisees, they're encouraged by this. They're like, we thought we weren't worthy to be with him. And he goes into the Pharisee leader's home with all these lawyers and, and higher-end people. He schools them and then comes back out to be with us. That was hard for them to grasp, and that gave them the courage, maybe, to press into him a little bit more. Well, let's hear who this guy is. Let's hear a little bit more. Instead of maybe keeping it at arm's distance, like that's a rock star, let's see what he does. They're like, maybe he's one of us now. So they press into him to find out who this man, Jesus, really is. That's where we get to Luke chapter 15. Okay, Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and sinners, I like how they're lumped together, were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he was just at the house of the leaders with all the muckety-mucks and the upper guys, the lawyers and the Pharisee leaders, and all those people were there, and he didn't eat with them. He chastised them and then walked out, healed somebody and then walked out. And now now they're going, wait a minute, We weren't good enough for him to eat with, but he's eating with these people. Tax collectors and sinners, by the way, tax collectors were the lowest of the low back then. If you work for the IRS or know somebody who does, I'm sorry, different time. Okay, it's different. Here's how it worked then. Some translations call them publicans, but it's the same thing. And what a tax collector was, a tax collector was basically a traitor, a liar, and a thief. And one of your own people who would take from you. See, all of the tax that was collected went to Rome in those days. And Rome could have sent their own enforcers or anybody to the villages and the towns and the regions around to collect the tax. But they didn't know who had money and who didn't. And so it could be hidden from them. By picking somebody who was local, picking one of your own, 
say, picking somebody from your own village or family, that person knew what you had to give and what you could give and what you couldn't. So there was a base tax that went to Rome that was his responsibility to collect, but then they got paid not by a salary from Rome. They got paid by extorting a little bit more out of you, whatever you could get. How'd you like to get your bill from the IRS, do your taxes at the end of the year and go, okay, I owe X amount, and then somebody comes to your door and goes, okay, that's what you owe them, but pay me. And they have the weight and the authority of Rome behind them. So they would extort. If you had money, if you had money, say your daughter was getting married next month, and you had been saving away some, some money for that, well, he would likely know about that and say, okay, well, give to Rome the tax that they're due, but I know you got a bunch squirreled away there. So give me some of it or I'll turn you in. So they were known as very low members of society. They were, they were hated and not liked. And yet it says, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now we've been in, in Job for a long time and all of our translation there was Hebrew. This is Greek. So we're in the New Testament, so it's translated in Greek. And that word receives translates as prosdecami. It's close, just trust me. And what it means really is to wait actively or expectantly. It means literally to be ready and willing to both give and to receive. It's a two-way thing. I'm ready to give you something. I'm ready to receive something from you. I'm ready to give you something. Are you ready to receive from me? It's an active verb. And so he is in this place, and he is receiving them, which means he's waiting for something from them, and he's waiting to give something to them. And it's not money, and it's not tax. So that's their, that's their entire charge here, is this. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And in response to that one little line... Jesus then launches into these three parables. He doesn't counter their arguments by saying, okay, let me explain to you. The reason I do that is because I want them to know that their feelings matter and that they are real people to God. And He doesn't go into any explanations like that at all, like we probably would. What he does is just launch into these parables. So here you go. So his response, Luke 15, verses 3 through 7. I'll read it to you. It's the first of our three parables. It's the parable of the lost sheep. And so he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost." I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. That's the first parable that he tells in response to that. A quick side note before we get into the rest. A lot of people have read that and they think, okay, so the shepherd is leaving the 99 alone. It does say he leaves the 99. But you would think, okay, he's leaving them unprotected. What about them? Don't they matter anymore then? So does the one matter more than the rest? They just explain that in that culture, what would happen is that shepherds would have their own individual flocks to, to watch over, to guard, and to keep safe, and they'd be responsible for them. But they would tend to gather in the same areas. 
same pastures, same open fields. And when one had to take a break or go find a lost sheep, the other ones would take over the responsibility for watching that flock until the shepherd returned. Okay, so the shepherds, again, just a side note, the, the sheep weren't left to their own devices at this time. Another shepherd was watching over them. But Jesus used the illustration of a shepherd here for many, many reasons. Several reasons that we should take a quick look at. Number one, Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. He referred to himself that way. Remember John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So Jesus himself referred to himself as the good shepherd. And then number two, the business of shepherding, the idea how it worked was well known in that culture. Whether you're a shepherd or not, whether you're a Pharisee or not, you kind of knew how it worked. It was just a part of their life that day. So that was an illustration that they could have related to a little bit. Number three, shepherds were seen as a lower class of society. They hardly, you can imagine, there weren't showers and facilities out in the middle of nowhere. So they, they were probably literally dirty and smelly people. But they were also most likely uneducated and kind of sort of the outcasts. Certainly the Pharisees and the upper muckety-mucks in the area would not have hung out with the shepherds. They were kind of considered that lower, least of these kind of people. And then most interestingly for me to think about this, sheep are virtually incapable of finding their way back on their own. If you know much about sheep or you've been around sheep at all, they are not really bright creatures. A sheep will literally go down a pathway 100 feet away, 100 yards away from their flock, facing the wrong direction, and sit and scream that, I'm lost, where's my flock? If they would simply turn around, the flock is right there. But they're not good at doing that. What they'll do is they'll just continue on down, screaming and bleeding in horror that they are lost. The flock is right there, but they're not capable of returning back on their own. I think that's a great illustration for us. Not the not, the not very smart part, but incapable of finding our way back on our own. So think about this. The accepted teaching at that time, the teaching that you would find in, in any synagogue, any temple, any time you got to sit down and hear teaching, the accepted teaching was this. If a sinner did the right things in the right way at the right time, you could have a good hope that God would have mercy on you. The right things, the right way at the right time, and you had a chance. That was the accepted teaching here. Jesus is teaching an entirely new concept. I don't know if you catch how much of a diversion from what they would normally have been taught. That is, Jesus' new concept that he's teaching here is that God will actively pursue the lost. He will actively pursue you, and he will not stop until he has them safely back in the flock. That is a radical difference from what they would have been being taught in general at the time. I heard one teacher put it like this. God goes to greater lengths to find the lost sinner than the lost sinner does in order to find God. How true is that? But here's where the freedom to choose comes in. That old pesky freedom that we have. Freedom to make our own decisions. Free will. It can be so troublesome at times. 
But here's where your choice comes in. When Jesus finds you, wherever you are, blissfully wandering down whatever path you have decided to follow, whatever looks shiny up ahead and you want to just follow that path down, to nowhere in particular, we're just doing it. When he finds you, you can repent and follow him and return back to the flock with him because he is the good shepherd who did and would lay down his life for you. He did that. So can you trust in him and follow him back? Or you can keep running down that random path, blissfully unaware of the roaring lion, hiding in the darkness, and just see what happens. Maybe even more, maybe even stubbornly defiant. I know it's out there. I know it's not right, but I'm not doing it just because somebody else told me I should. But eventually, one day, the lion will feast. So the choice is yours. We always have that choice. Remember, Scripture says that when the shepherd finds that sheep, he carries it back on his shoulders. That's because sheep, if you say, okay, that's not a good way for you to go, sheep. The flock's over here. Safety's over here. This is where you should be. Follow me. The sheep don't say, well, okay, I'll just walk with him. That's why they have the crook. That's why they pick them up, put them on their shoulders, because left to their own, they'll continue to wander down that path, even knowing it's not the way to go. That's just how we are. But that choice, again, that choice is ours. Remember when I quoted, uh, when I read to you John 6, 39, Jesus' own words again, and this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything he has given me, I will lose nothing, but raise it up on that last day. And in case that's not clear enough, here's one more for you. It's the last scripture I'll have for you today. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. We've got it on screen. Jesus again saying this, my sheep... Listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I love that picture. If you have been given to Jesus Christ, you belong to him. What an encouragement for those um, parents, maybe, who have a child who maybe was brought up in the church and left it. And now you're wondering. We'll talk more about that when we see the prodigal son parable. What an encouragement for those who have been maybe a part of the church or baptized young or knew the Lord young and then have strayed away. The good shepherd is pursuing you. Every minute, all we have to do is stop and turn, and he is there. Otherwise, we'll continue to go down that path. And he will let you walk down that path as far as you want to. But as soon as you stop, he is right behind you, pursuing you. He is relentless in his pursuit of you. And you can struggle, and you can be defiant, and you can doubt his ability to catch you. You can doubt whether he cares about you at all. You can even think that you can walk through that path of life just fine without his help. But make no mistake, Jesus is relentless. 
He is relentless. And that should get an amen from somebody. Uh, I love that because we are taught again and again the enemy is relentless. The enemy prowls. The enemy prowls in the, in the bushes, in the dark, in the side, ready to devour those who stray. But the good shepherd is always with you. And he is always pursuing you. And he is always ready to pull you back in. Pull you back into his arms. He doesn't ask questions. Where have you been? Why did you do that? And in fact, if a good shepherd would take that sheep off his shoulders and set him down, there's a good chance the sheep would run back the other way. Isn't that just like us? No matter how many times he literally puts us on, our sh- on his shoulders and walks us to safety, left to our own again, where we're going to walk down that path again. But he pursues us time and time again. In church, he is relentless. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus, to this earth in the flesh for us to die for us, to take that that we so much deserved, to take that onto himself and to relentlessly pursue us day after day, night after night. Father, we praise you. We praise you for that gift. We praise you that no matter how many times we have run down that wrong path, no matter how many times we have defiantly run away from you, Lord, you are there. You are there with your arms wide open. The second that we slow down, you are there, ready to welcome us in open arms and bring us back. Father, we thank you. We thank you for for caring for us. We thank you that your, your love and your caring for us has nothing to do with how obstinate, stubborn, or ignorant we are and how many times we run down that wrong path. It's all about who you are. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to do something, guys, that we haven't done in a little while. I want to do some testimony time. So I'm going to grab the mic and bring it up here. And here's what, let's focus our testimonies on that. If you have something great to share, that's fine. Let's try and focus on where were you when Jesus found you? Where were you when Jesus found you, the good shepherd? when he found his stray sheep. Let's do that. I'm going to turn the mic on. Is it on? It is not. Put it up here. And if you're bold enough, come stand up front and do that. Otherwise, I'll bring it to you if you want me to. But let's take a minute. Testimony is so powerful, and it always just takes that one person to go first. You want to come up? Come on up. People are always, I'm not going to be first. So thank you for being first. I was going to say that God has helped me through my surgery. I mean, he, I had vision surgery, and he, he helped me by, he blessed me with having my sister come over to help me, to take care of me. He, he blessed me with family, family church that blesses me with food. God has blessed me with helping me recover. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this good without, without God. Because he, I know his health was in, was on the surgery. You know, he's helped me, he's helped me recover. He's blessed me in so many ways during the surgery. And I couldn't have 
gone through this without God because he's been there for me through everything all my life as a child as well. And he's been a blessing to me, to my family. And as a child, he's been a blessing to me in so many ways. In so many ways. And I'm grateful because I could have done this without him. None of this without him. I mean, I just, I'm grateful. It he's done in my life, my family's life, for everything. Everything he did for me growing up, I am grateful. And I couldn't do without him. My name is George. I'll be 80 in October. I grew up in New York in the late 40s. I had nothing, zero. There was no food in my house, and God gave me this neighbor that fed me. And from abject poverty, I was in the original cast of South Pacific in New York when I was nine and a half. And then I sang with Dion and the Belmonts. And now here I am at Discover Community Church thanking God for everything he's given me. Amen. Last Saturday I came to the barbecue and Pastor Bob came up to greet me. And he said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm in pain. My neck hurts, my shoulders, my arms, my hands. I could hardly move. And I went home and I prayed to Jesus. Hey, you, you put me here, fix me. And then he said, call Dr. Green. And I'm like, wow, I haven't seen Dr. Green in a year and a half. So I called Dr. Green. I told him what was going on. No problem, George. Come in, I'll fix you. And I'm like, yeah, right. So I go in Thursday. He gives me three little bottles of pills. I took them on Thursday night. I went to sleep, slept all night, got up at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I moved my arms, and my neck didn't hurt, awesome. and it's all from Jesus, because mm -hmm. if I didn't say prayers, I wouldn't have called Dr. Green, Amen. so say prayers. Amen. George and I are playing tennis later today. We're playing tennis later today, right? Yes. All right. Anybody else have another one? Yeah, come on up. Um, so, let me grab this. So, this was actually happened last night. Um, I was at this uh, other place with my family that they usually go to, and how they end is they kind of have every person pair up and give each other, like, a to practice, like, giving each other prophecy and, like, words of encouragement. And um, that day, and kind of for the past few weeks, I was just kind of, I was not in the mood for anything that Jesus really wanted me to do. I just felt so distant from him, and I was questioning everything. But um, we kind of like ended and said, okay, you're going to go find another person and you're going to go give them some kind of word of encouragement. And I said to Jesus, I was like, well, my head's not there. I'm not feeling spiritual. I feel like I haven't prayed. Even though I have, I just feel like I wasn't close. I feel like I am not suited to give a word of prophecy or anything to anyone. But he immediately gave me this picture. And I thought, 
Oh, that's probably just my mind. That's whatever. So I got talking to this guy who was, he kind of uh, gave me some encouragement, and then I was just talking to him about what was going on in his life. He was just telling me about, like, his life, his business, things that he's doing, and what he's struggling with, and I was like, okay. I have no idea what to say, but here's this picture that I got. Um, and uh, it was really obscure. It didn't really make a ton of sense, but as I was going, like, I could feel that the Spirit was still in me. He, he never left me. At no point was I actually as far gone as I thought that I could really, I really did just like turn around immediately and like I had that Spirit in me and that word that I gave him was really encouraging. And so it just, like hearing Bob's message right now, it's like, wow, like that's actually like really applies to me last night. And I just thought that was really cool. That's awesome. Anyone else? Awesome. Put this up for you. Uh, good morning. My name is Brian, and I'm a student at Denver Seminary, and I actually got involved with this church with Pastor Gabe. Um, I guess I felt moved to share that in some ways I feel like I've always been found because I was born into a family that loved Jesus. Um, super dysfunctional because we're humans um, and that dysfunction is carried on in my life and really the thing that I would share is I relate very much to the foolishness of the sheep because I can look back on my life so many times and see when I have made just horribly stupid decisions whether it's out of my own selfishness or greed my own disappointment in myself like I'll just hide and even when I'm hiding and actively at times trying to avoid the Lord, he has found me. So Amen. his pursuit truly is relentless. Awesome. Awesome. All right. We've got time for one more if you're that. Per- there we are. I don't even have to ask. I love it. Sorry, I'm short. (laughs) Um, I'm Haley. I'm crying right now. Sorry. Um, I've struggled for like the past, I don't even know, two, three years with where I'm at with God. Um, I struggle with depression and just a lot of mental stuff. Um, I lost my stepdad to suicide about two years ago, and I'm still trying to, I guess, recover from feeling like I'm loved, and it's been hard, but um, I know that I have a lot of people that care about me and that love me, and so that's that's been helpful, that's been getting me through it, but um, I'm still kind of on this weird path because it's like when I when I feel like I need God I don't reach out to him and that's my biggest regret is I I turn away thinking that I can just deal with things on my own and um I I can't and I'm still trying to figure out how to turn towards him instead of away from him so that's about it.
should probably move on, and we could do that for, we could do that all day. And it's so encouraging to hear in the middle of a storm, when you're going through it, you can still praise him and you can still know that he's good and that he's right behind you. No matter how many times you make that decision to walk the path on my own, oh yeah, I can do that. We just need to be reminded of his goodness. And that's, I think, parables like that just help us to see that he is good and he'll never leave us. So if you're, maybe you're in here for the first time or you're out there online, wherever you are, and you're that person. Maybe you're that sheep who has been running your entire life and has never known what it was like to be in the arms of the shepherd, to be in the arms of Jesus who will welcome you in any time. And every single time we stray, he'll welcome you back in. You know, Scripture says that you just have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. It doesn't mean you have to get your stuff together. Your stuff can be all over the place. And that shepherd is still there waiting for you. And so maybe if it's the first time, you just have to say that. Lord, I'm tired of running this path on my own, these various paths, and I've made it this far, but I'm not right. I want what you have to offer. I want your peace. I want your mercy. And I want to know you. And if you say that, coming from your heart, that's all you need to do. It's not this this mystical thing, a series of procedures that you have to do, just quit running. Just quit running that path on your own and turn around and guess what? That shepherd has been with you all the time. And he never left you. If you're here in house and maybe that is the first time that you've ever done it, or if you're out there online, you can put it in the chat boards. We have but it's confusing. If this is the first time you've ever given your heart to Christ, ever stopped running from him, it can be confusing. You end up with more questions than answers right off the bat. We have prayer people in the back. I, myself, Gabe, we'll be around after. We'll be happy to talk with you. Find one of our staff members. We'll talk to you. We've got some books in the back. New Christian's Handbook, which is just a series of things that will answer your question, like Christian FAQs for those who are new to it. But don't just leave it there. Pursue him. He has pursued you relentlessly. Now pursue him back. We're going to take communion now. I'm going to pray here in a second. And when we're finished, I already prayed, didn't I? Too much prayer. We don't need that much prayer. I might just pray again. We're going to go into communion. Now, if you're out there at home, you're on your own for communion. But if you're here in-house, we have at the crosses, both crosses, we have self-serves. We have bread and the gluten-free crackers. You can serve yourself or your family, and then there's juice there. And then up front here, Gabe and I have wine and bread and crackers, and you can line up here, and we'll be happy to serve you. But as you do that, let's just be thankful about who Jesus is and his, again, his relentless pursuit. He will never give up, and that's, that's reason alone to praise him. Amen? Amen? All right. I said I'd pray again, so I'm going to do it. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the joyful worship that we are about to celebrate, and thank you for, thank you for the blessing that it is to have communion together in the body of Christ. In your name, amen.